0: Come, spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Roland Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome back to Rolling Bones with Ryan Howard, where we make old school young again. I'm your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and uh, joining me this evening is uh, one of my uh, more popular guests that I've had on in recent days. He's got a brand new Kickstarter out for a a brand new set of role-playing game rules called Dragon Slayer. He is, of course, the great and powerful Dr. Greg Gillespie. We'll bring him on here in just a second. I'm excited to talk to him tonight about what he's got cooking with this uh, particular rule set. But uh, before we get into that, I just want to remind everyone to uh, like, share, and subscribe if you enjoy what we're doing here on Roland Bones. I appreciate your support in any way that you give it. And uh, speaking of support, you can find me on all of these various social media. I am at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg on X and Instagram on YouTube. I am Roland Bones. Twitch is twitch.tv slash Bones Ryan and Substack, my current favorite platform other than YouTube, of course, where I get to talk to you guys here every Tuesday night, is Substack. Uh, Substack is where you can kind of read my unfiltered thoughts on all things role-playing related. Recently did an article about holidays and feast days in role-playing games and why you should make use of them, both for their historical significance and their uh, impact on the game itself. Uh, so if you want to check that out, you can find the link in chat or in the pinned comment if you are watching after the fact. And of course, if you like to uh, support shows like this and wear cool-looking merch like this, uh, you can find that over on Tee Public. Again, the link will be over in the chat or in the pinned comment for those of you watching after the fact. So that's enough of uh, my nonsense and my shilling. Let's go ahead and bring on the uh, man that you guys are all here to see, uh, the great and powerful Dr. Greg Gillespie. Greg, welcome back to Rolling the Bones. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem at all. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, we are here to discuss your uh, Dragon Slayer role-playing game, which is currently on Kickstarter, fully funded within 24 hours of launch. Uh, So if you had to give kind of like your elevator pitch for what this game is, uh, how would you describe it to people?
1: Uh, I would say it's a combination of the simplicity and elegance of BX with the textured charm and um, uh, fascination with uh, first edition.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. And we've seen a lot of people enter into this arena. I I was saying the other day, Wizards of the Coast is practically begging people not to buy their game anymore. They've made it just so difficult to play the game that actually has the D, the ampersand, and the D on the cover. So a lot of people have decided to kind of step into that void and say, you can play this game instead. What made you want to enter into this
1: arena yourself? Well, there are a couple different reasons for that. Um, First, I think it's a gap in the marketplace. Um, I think that there are opportunities. So like, I guess I have a very specific view of what I want my role playing games to be, uh, how I want them to look and how I want them to feel. And I don't I don't read a lot of material that leaps off the page for what I'm looking for. So from that standpoint, I do the same thing with, with the adventures. I'm sure some of your viewers are familiar with uh, with my adventures and um, a lot of times, like this is the stuff that I wanted to play when I was like 12, 13, 14, 15, but you know, uh, but they, they weren't really kind of available uh, or the mega dungeons that, that I had just weren't scratching the exact itch that I was looking for. So the rule set is no different uh, than that, and if you're familiar with the layout and aesthetic choices and uh, how the materials organized, you can expect that same uh, approach. My my fingerprints are are uh, uh, all over everything to express the game the way I, I want to express it.
0: Gotcha. Now, here's a a question that a lot of people have had, uh, specifically related to to your game. We have seen a lot of takes on BX-powered games. We've seen a lot of games that have some kind of fusion of the basic expert rules with AD&D 1E or with other game systems. What is it that you feel makes your particular uh, you know, take on this rule set uh, unique enough that people should definitely check it out?
1: Well, uh, I'm not really uh, a fan of, <clears throat> like, splat books. And I'm not a fan of splat books because I, when I'm, if I, I'm creating something, like, you think of the amount of times you pick up a book and you put it down, and you pick up another book and you put it down. I'm, I'm forever surrounded by piles of books. And um, so what I did was my my own DMing copy of, uh, of AD&D, for example, I had, the Player's Handbook, the DM Guide, Monster Manual One, Monster Manual Two, and the Fiend Folio, all bound into one massive leather-bound book. And that way, I don't have to pick keep, constantly pick up books and put them down, and so on. And uh, but but for the game that I want to continue to write for in the future, I wanted one book. So and that's really really what I'm looking at here. So that's uh, a big a big part of it. I want the the um, the simplicity and elegance of of Moldvay Basic, with the the chrome and the texture uh, of AD and D, but in with with art that leaps off the page at you. So those are really important considerations for me. And I'll, I'll I'm I guess I'm saying the same thing as I when you asked earlier, but I just don't. I'm not inspired by a lot of the material I look at. Mm-hmm. And there, there are many reasons for that. It could be the layout. It could be some of the design choices. It's definitely the art. Um, so, And I want some internal consistency. So I don't want to have, as much as I respect um, the guys that do OSE, like if you've got fairy tale art on one page and dark fantasy on the next and high fantasy on the next and low fantasy on the next and so on mm-hmm. and so forth, doesn't have a lot of internal consistency for me. Now, that may be your jam. and If that's your jam, that's great because those guys do a great job, and they're awesome, and they're prolific, and good for them. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just not for me. So uh, having said that, um, each of my adventures uh, has a particular aesthetic that's forwarded through it, and that reinforces the themes of those books. And this rule book is going to do exactly the same thing from cover to cover, it's going to reinforce itself and build on itself. So, uh, hopefully, uh, that will, um, that'll interest people.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ryan Hevelfinger asks a good question here in chat, and this was actually where I was going to take things next. Uh, you say that you're not inspired a lot by the art out there. Uh, what kind of aesthetic or what feel are you looking for in, uh, you know, your fantasy art to really kind of kickstart your imagination and how will that uh, particular inspiration be reflected in dragon slayer?
1: Well, one of the key things when you, when you think about art is that you, if you go back and you look at the old AD and D art, for example, or the art that preceded it, you know, a lot of those artists were, they played the game as well and they had a very clear understanding of what it was like to play the game, that most of the time you're fleeing, most of the time you're running away, and these things are all happening in the dark. So um, when I think of of, uh, black and white art, I'm thinking uh, torchlight. So there has to be the the equivalent of torchlight or less. Things are not auto-illuminated. There's not an abundance of light. Rather, there's an abundance of darkness. All the cool, scary stuff that happens in Dungeons and Dragons happens in the dark. So that that has to be reflected in the art. And then the rules have to reflect that darkness and and the advantage of light and uh, what that would mean if you were a monster, what what that would mean if you're a player. And that needs to constantly be be forced and then reinforced. So when I speak to artists, we're uh, almost always on the same page when it comes to that kind of thing. And, uh, and I, I've got a, a great group of artists I work with regularly. Uh, they already know the kinds of things that I'm looking for and, and we're like hand in glove at this point that, that uh, they, they uh, know the aesthetic, uh, the, the point of reference that I'm coming from. And then, yeah, you can pick you know, here or there where there are examples of uh, um, you know, better light. And those, what those do is they, those serve to reinforce the darkness. Um, Mm -hmm. So you have to think of it from different vantage points.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, And one thing for me, and I've talked about this on the show a lot, one of my big sticking points with modern RPG art is there's not much kineticism, not much movement to it. There's a lot of people posing and there's not a lot of looking at an image and seeing a slice of a story like you would see in a lot of mm-hmm. old school art i i i always come back to a paladin in hell as my favorite example of what i'm talking about is that something that you look for in your art as well just this this sense that you have kind of looked into a specific moment in time in the uh, the characters that are occupying that space's world
1: yeah so Um, A lot of my perspective on art comes from uh, my PhD dissertation, which was in part art analysis. Mm -hmm. So uh, I brought that perspective into an analysis of early Dungeons and Dragons art, and I broke it all down and deconstructed it all, and then started asking how and why. And that brought me to several conclusions, which I used to reinforce the, the, um, the uh, art I'm looking for in, uh, for my material. And then you've got sort of like these, um, it's considered like a set of parameters. And then then you, uh, on top of that parameters, you, a set of parameters, you overlap your own uh, fundamental assumptions about the game and how it should look and how it should feel. And then, so you go from sort of broad to specific and you can narrow in very nicely to uh, your vision. But at the end of the day, you only have vision for a project if you're informed and in being informed means going at it much like you would if you were writing um an essay paper at university or something like that where you go and you do a lit review uh you get and make notes on everything you're fully informed and then from that position you start to develop your voice and your voice is not only what you, how you feel about um, rules, but also how you feel about aesthetics, and then also your writing. And and the more you do that, the better you get at it. And that allows you to bring to, to speak to people with your voice. So just like if you have a YouTube channel, or if you write cooking books, or if you um, stand up in front of people and you, you do public speaking, And hopefully you have, you're informed enough to have your voice and that's what resonates, right? So when someone is speaking from the heart, they're speaking from a position that's informed, that's when, uh, people tend to stop and listen. Yeah. yeah.
0: And while we're on the subject of art, I will go ahead and bring this up for everyone to see, uh, because Greg has been gracious enough to provide me with some, uh, preview pieces. Uh, That will feature prominently in Dragon Slayer, and so this uh, this first one that we have here, um, this is from Peter Pagano, and it's a lurker. Um, and And this is what I'm talking about when when I mention kineticism. You don't just have like an image of a lurker that looks like the lurker's posing for the camera. You see adventurers uh, being kind of enveloped by this thing. So you know, I I I think this. Mm -hmm also kind of plays around with the, uh, the light as you were talking about, especially with that, mm-hmm. that knight holding that torch. Uh, this yeah. is a really cool piece.
1: Yeah. So when you look at this, the fir- one of the first questions you have to ask is what's taking up the majority of the visual space, mm-hmm. the players or the monster, it's the monster, right? right. So the, the theme of this is the, the uh, dominance of the monster over the player characters. And then it's also the precarious situation in which the uh, player characters are are in. And the last thing on the list are the player characters. That is old school. That is channeling the old school. So this piece is by a Peter Pagano, uh, who is just terrific, and he's been involved in my stuff all the way along. We're, it seems it's been a decade now. It's kind of hard to believe, but... So you know this is a great great example. The visual space is is all about the monster. Then it's the situation. Then it's the player characters. And uh, and then you know there's nothing that's more old school than uh, conical wizard caps and bucket helmets. So and those those are all purposeful. Like when we do this kind of thing. So because what those do, they serve as signs and symbols. They signify to the viewer what where we are. So you pointed out. know, if you look at some 5e art and certainly 4e um the the stoicism right the the control communicated by the depiction of player characters is just so off-putting it's just Mm -hmm. dreadful in every way and so that's not interesting where this situation is oh my goodness look at that they're about to be alive that's interesting Yeah, and because we've played the game we've all been in those situations Right, you remember that time you walked in that room and you're eaten by the lurker above, and everyone has a giggle and a laugh because that's what it's all about, right? I mean, yep. it's funny. And the lore this speaks to the lore of the game. Having a like a very stern jawed, stoic, uh, whatever in, in fourth edition was just like meh. It's just like it doesn't resonate, it doesn't speak. And I don't know, I don't know why. Uh, they, they the Wizards of the Coast continues to their art but they do mm-hmm.
0: yeah there's a there's a fear of vulnerability from watsi and a lot of other modern game companies when it comes to their art they they want to portray heroes being heroic but what everyone seems to forget about that side of things is that the the most heroic heroes we have in fantasy, really any fictional genre, show emotion when it's appropriate for there to be emotion. I always go back to uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark as a a good example. You see Indiana Jones do a lot of very, uh, you know, crazy, uh, death-defying things. But at the same time, you can see the worry and the emotion on his face as he's doing it because he's not sure that he's going to come out the other side alive. And you see a lot of that here. Mm-hmm. in this uh, this image.
1: Yeah, I agree with you completely about the Indiana Jones reference. It's totally uh, appropriate.
0: Mm-hmm. And the other thing, you, you mentioned the bucket helmet. Um, and I, I kind of want to nerd out on gear here a little bit for a second. But when you look at a bucket helmet in just kind of the knight's arsenal, you're looking at something that offers maximum protection and really kind of minimal visibility and so when you wear a piece of armor like this you are gambling on your ability to see what's around you and one of the places where you sacrifice in wearing something like this is from a threat above you you don't have a lot of peripheral vision and Mm -hmm. so you can see even without his face visible the emotion of having to lift your head to see this thing in this cumbersome uh, piece of equipment where you can only see a slit. And you know that, that's something that that really, again, it paints a picture. It, it gives you not just a, a visual but a mental image and allows you to put emotion on someone whose face you can't see because you can easily imagine yourself looking at this monster above you. Through a tiny little slit.
1: That's right, and and uh, let's go into just as much depth on the wizard. So if you dial back all the way to like Holmes Basic, right? So you've got the dragon on the front and the the warriors to the to the left, if I recall correctly, and the wizards to the right, and you got the conical cap with the stars and moons on it. So you know back in the you know the the early late sixties, early seventies if you had a child's birthday party and you did sort of a magic show or whatever, it wouldn't be like, we're accustomed in the eighties. You probably had like a creepy clown at your, uh, at your birthday party and they would do like little tricks and things like that. But preceding that you would have somebody probably dressed as a wizard doing little, little tricks and, and gags, and they would show up with the conical cap. And so when you roll around to the first depictions of wizards, what do you get? Well, you get the kind of traditional party, Wizard and mm-hmm. and that's uh, that conical cap uh, signals all the way back, back to uh, those references.
0: Yep, yep, absolutely. And now moving on from the lurker, uh, we get into this uh, this image of a a dark elf, uh, and this one is done by uh, someone that you've collaborated with regularly uh, in in the name of a uh, Kenan James. Um, I've seen a lot of people very excited about the art that he's doing for this book. And from what I see here, uh, you know, it's going to be good stuff. Um, I, 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 again, I really like the shadow that you see here because again, assuming that this is a dark elf with the, the spider motif that you can see on his armor, you see a lot of that shadow in his face in his armor. He's mostly shrouded in shadow. This is a creature who is used to the darkness. And I feel like it's been, portrayed very well in this piece.
1: Completely agree. And so, you know, you've got like the, uh, the hand crossbow, um, the, the spider on the belt and a little bit of, a little bit of exotic armor, but not overdone. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is where, you know, things went really awry in third edition with sort of dungeon punk and other, other silly nonsense. You know, I, I, I like, a, a just a touch, uh, of exotic to distinguish. This is, a a race of people who are who live apart from uh, everybody else. They've got their own ways of doing things, their own ways of of uh, uh, their own aesthetic in their armor and their look, and and so you get just enough exotic to say, yeah, that's pretty badass. And honestly, I don't need to say anything at all about Ken and Jane's art. It leaps off the page. It as I um, said uh, the other day, um, if you know it, you could look at this. And say that came out of the the AD&D um, Monster Manual, and I say that with as much affection and reverence as, as I possibly can. And if if Ken and James was doing was doing art, um, if we you would see his art in in first edition and and say he's just as good as Dave Trampier for sure, mm-hmm. without question in my mind.
0: Absolutely. And. Uh luau lu here in chat from dandelion games makes a, an excellent point this is great use of negative space yes um, very it, when you look at it almost kind of minimal detail but the detail that does stand out really stands out because of the use of negative space so it's it's
1: all light and shade it's exactly right and you know one of the things that uh again you know uh, wizards buggers is that they don't leave anything to the imagination and one of the things you can do with uh, black and white line art is you can leave things to the imagination with the use of negative space jim holloway did a great job of using negative space as well and certainly ken james does a great job here
0: yeah yeah there's nothing that you can draw in detail that's as terrifying as just kind of like a dark you know Essential, essentially like a funnel into a dark tunnel that has like teeth and eyes at the end of it. That's mm-hmm. kind of the, the like terrifying image that everyone has in their head from childhood is just eyes and a mouth in the dark. And the imagination fills in the rest of the details. There's nothing else that you can put in that space that can terrify you quite as much as just that. And so artists who are able to work with those details, I... You know, it it really is, um, you know, something to be applauded and something to be valued, especially in an imagination heavy medium like role playing games. Yes.
1: And that's that's a great phrase. Imagination heavy. Um, You you know, when there are ways to um, to draw the viewer into art and negative space is a great way of doing it. And the play of light—it's all light and shade, right? And so that—that's we. It's very balanced between the white of the hair, the white of the the dagger, and the uh, the highlights on the on the and the the greaves. And so I think he does a great job here. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And from there, this actually gives us not only uh, you know some art to work with, but also kind of a look at the layout that you're going for and so this is the fighter um here we have a a nice image of a fighter going up against a uh, a dragon and i i again on the nerding out over equipment side of things i want to applaud your use of the gambeson and uh chainmail combination here because i again it's one of those things that because of the way that role-playing games are traditionally written people forget that armor is worn in combination and so seeing what's usually you know two separate types of armor separated out on the table put together in an image that's you know good attention to historical detail and, and it makes for a cool looking image as well
1: yeah so when i gave um ken in this brief uh everything was Norman, um, relative to the equipment, to the shield, the helmet and everything else. I wanted a very much a a Norman, a Norman knight. And then anytime, uh, you know, you have a dragon, you have to reference Sutherland's, uh, dragons. That's how it's done. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, uh, and what that does is that, that, um, that head spine, uh, speaks white dragon. Uh, so, you know, that's, um, I think it's really important when we're to to orient and situate dragons uh, for the viewer.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And each just to and jump in there as well. Sorry. Um, so each page in the Dragon Slayer book will have a two-page class layout. So when you're on the cleric page, it'll be two pages. When you're on the fighter page, it'll be two pages. Magic user, and so on so that uh, you've got everything there. You've got both the material, everything you need to create your character, um, you, you've got on the page, and then you've got some great inspirational art to to help uh, help you build your, your character the way you want it.
0: Yep, absolutely. Yeah, the, this is very similar to what I was talking about last week with DM Blackwall. Um, he also strove to compress classes into as small a space as possible for the express purpose of when you need to reference something about your class, it's all right there in front of you. And so being able to do that while still giving good information is uh, essential to creating a good product. There's nothing worse than having to flip through multiple pages just to try and find the, the one thing you need to reference in a game situation.
1: Yeah, so my thought process in thinking about this isn't the player who has been playing role-playing games for decades. This is for the person who's coming to role-playing games for the first time. And that's that's I think that's the majority of people or the people who uh, only really crack their books when it's game night.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And things need to be uh, situated for ease of access. And that's what we have here. Absolutely.
0: Yep. And, and the layout here is very clean. It it's, looks like it's very easy to read. So I'm looking forward to seeing kind of how the, the rest of the book uh, plays with, you know, the the template that you've laid out here. And, and this actually does uh, get me excited about, you know, reading this book, because it looks like it's easy to read, but without sacrificing uh, depth. That's right.
1: So you don't really need, like if you think about it logically, you don't need four paragraphs of background on the fighter. It's just not necessary. Uh, if you get in there, get in, say what you have to say, get out, and then move on to the next thing. And uh, and so I, I think um, that that speaks to me. Uh, we don't need paragraph after paragraph in order to build a fighter or a cleric or whatever. And the magic user uh, page is very similar. Uh, and um, the barbarian, uh, the barbarian pages uh, also complete as well and it looks ter- it looks just terrific mm-hmm. and I try to, I do try to use so for example, if I have an artist doing the classes section, I have the same artist doing all the classes. if I'm uh, in other areas, I have the same artist doing those so there's some aesthetic consistency with each section um, for you know it could be classes or it could be dragons or it could be giants or it could be. Um, demons or devils. And, um, and that I think is uh, I think people appreciate that attention to detail. Yep, absolutely.
0: Now, uh, kind of switching gears here a little bit. uh, Luau Lu has a question here in chat. Um, He wants to know how long you've been working on this project. I know that these rules originated as your kind of house rules for running BX, but you know, how, how long has this been something that you've been wanting to publish uh, for other people to use?
1: Right. Well, so what we did was um, back when I was using uh, Labyrinth Lord for my, as a basis for my home game. So we had uh, a group Wiki. And so we would post material about classes or equipment or whatever on the Wiki, uh, but no rules are ever posted there because that just wouldn't be appropriate to do. So that was always there. And, um, and we experimented a lot, you know, going, going back a a decade or more to get, to get things where we wanted to get them. So for example, with the fighter, we just weren't, I was never really happy with how the fighter played at the table. And so I wanted to make some changes and then uh, my players were really good about experimenting. So we'd experiment along the way until we came to something that really worked well at the table. Um, Then I started thinking about uh, the publishing a rule set probably two and a half years ago. Mm. So I worked on it um, this the winter of two years ago and then very extensively last winter and then all through um, the spring and the summer uh, coming to this point. And, And in particular, thinking about 2024 is the 50th anniversary for Um, Dungeon Dragons it's just the the timing's perfect and then of course you know there's the there was the issue with um, Labyrinth Lord not really being supported anymore and uh, quite often I found I was the only person running games at conventions because I flipped through the the um, you know the pamphlet for the, the book of games or whatever it might be and there just wasn't anybody running it and so I thought well I have to do something here and And that started the impetus to create my own rule set and, and put it out there. Yep, absolutely.
0: Now, one question that I do have, um, and I'm sure this is something that you've given great thought to, but with BX being essentially what's under the hood here, how much, if any of the OGL, are you having to rely on, uh, with this, uh, this game that
1: you're creating here? Um. Well, I, can you clarify the question?
0: Yeah, basically, what I'm what I'm trying to ask in kind of a roundabout way is: Should Wizards of the Coast try to do what they did or what they tried to do with the OGL again? How would that impact your game?
1: Well, I don't think it's going to impact my game. I haven't really made a decision as to how uh, what license I'm going to use. I'll probably go Creative Commons. Um, and then create a compatibility license that will be fairly straightforward and, and devoid of legalese so that it's easy for people to create adventures or supplements or whatever they'd like to create. So uh, that's how I envision going uh, forward with things, and, um, but, but that's not a decision that's, uh, that's imminent. I don't have to make that decision right now, but that, that's the plan right now
0: okay yeah i i see where you're coming from on that uh do you (laughs) think that people might be hesitant to back a game and i know like we're talking about a fully funded game at this point but do you think people might be hesitant to back a game that could potentially rely on aspects of the ogl
1: i don't think so uh so you have to think about the sheer volume of OGL material, and so even if Wizards of the Coast says, "Yeah, we're going to yoink the OGL," um, the likelihood of them saying, "We're going to yoink the OGL," and oh by the way, all that you know, two decades or almost 25 years of things is now invalid. Uh, hmm. That's they're not really ready for that kind of disaster, given all the stupidity from earlier this year. I just can't, I can't see a world when that happens. That doesn't mean it wouldn't happen. I just don't see it. And even if it did, so, okay, you, uh, you publish to the creative commons and do your thing. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I I don't think that that's a question really. Okay. Like it's a dumb and dumber chance. Like it's a 1% chance it could happen. And given all the mistakes that they've made, I just, I don't see it.
0: Yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from on that. I maybe this is just me being pessimistic. I I don't put anything past uh, Hasbro's board of directors and how foolish they've been up to this point, especially if things don't go well for them next year. But again, you know, at, at this point, it, it sounds like there's enough uh, under this. So that you can pretty easily pivot away from the OGL entirely should the need arise. So people can rest assured in in that regard.
1: So they've changed their game to the point where, uh, you know, they've, they've alienated half their audience and their sales can go nowhere but down, Mm -hmm. um, their material's not really any good. And they're run more by for lack of a better word, the message than they are good design and good gaming. So that's where we're at with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in the meantime, uh, people in the OSR just continue doing what they do. And honestly, I was just just at North Texas there in June and there's just such a flowering of creative endeavor there. Uh, So, you know, I don't, I don't see any issue at all moving forward, whether it would be the OGL or uh, creative commons. Hmm.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Now, based on the products that you've put out in the past, the adventures, the mega dungeons that you are famous for, I think a lot of people have in their minds, what kind of game you're looking to create with dragon slayer, what kind mm-hmm. of play style, you're looking to support. Uh, my question is beyond kind of the dungeon delving, the uh the exploration side of things, how are you looking at supporting kind of the other pillars of play to use that term, uh, that often occur within uh D? And I'm specifically talking about things like domain play, uh, the potential for running mass combats. Uh have you Thought about that for this game. Is that something you even want to focus on for this game?
1: Not really, uh, because so you have to ask yourself, how often are people actually doing that kind of thing? And is that core or is it an outlier? So, you know, I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons for, I don't know, 40 plus years. And uh, I've yet I've played one mass combat game and that was this past summer. So it's it, like, if I want to play a mass combat game, I'll play a mass combat game. If I want to play Dungeons and Dragons, then it's going to be dungeon crawling. So one of the key things about the game that I'm creating is the power creep is very low. And if you, if you want to think in terms of like uh, with if you think in terms of like combat bonus, so if that's in your frame of reference from playing past editions. Um, there's there's not like a plus one per level, even for the fighter. You can get additional bonuses tactically, but you have to work for those. They're not innate on your character sheet. Mm -hmm. So if you want to flank your opponent, there's a bonus. If you want to ensure you're fighting on high ground, there's a bonus. So there are bonuses to be had, but you have to position yourself tactically with good... Um, combat decisions to take advantage of those bonuses. Now, these are things that a veteran D&D player, especially old school D&D, already knows. But they're not things that necessarily made it into the rules. They're not th- necessarily things that were were encouraged uh, with bonuses. So one of the things, because I, I have a great love of the um, Citadel, a d and d and line from the 1980s and and citadel even uh, miniatures preceding that so i enjoy playing with miniatures at the table we don't always play with miniatures particularly if it's like a busy week or whatever but um so like i i really enjoy uh, uh painting i enjoy playing with miniatures and so with this game you can use miniatures and it will be seamless or you can just play theater of the mind and you don't have to use miniatures at all so whether you're one or the other or you do it occasionally, it'll all be very seamless. Gotcha. And gotcha. Most, of us, most of us, our games can't say that.
0: Okay. Yeah. Now, another question I have for you, and again, this is kind of related to the, you know, the same topic. Say someone wanted to run a game that is more inspired by something like Fawford and the Gray Mouser, something that's very city focused. Do you think they could do that and still get the same enjoyment and experience out of Dragon Slayer?
1: There's no question. uh, They can Having said that, um, again, I'm only going, I know there are some great urban campaigns out there. I haven't played in any of them. Um, The, like, to me, it's just like uh, Star Wars, good Star Wars. It happens at the periphery. It's not at the Metropole. So, uh, when you're I think Dungeon Dragons is coolest when you're out in the frontier or past the frontier. Your lines of your logistical lines are cut. Now you have to rely on each other and your and resource management and uh, whether you're hex crawling or whether you're dungeon crawling. That's where it's at for me. Having said that, you'll be able to play, you know, urban uh, urban crawls or whatever you like with this rule set. No doubt about it.
0: Gotcha. Now, not to get too sidetracked on this point, but I feel like kind of separating wilderness exploration and city exploration from each other, I I, I think that ends up being kind of the problem that people have with urban campaigns. If you think about it, I mean, the term concrete jungle is out there, but exploring a city and exploring the wilderness are not all that dissimilar from each other. The only changes you make there are the kinds of things you can encounter. So it seems like it's it's really not all that dissimilar, uh, at least in, in my experience, in my opinion.
1: Well, from the standpoint of creating random tables and uh, putting forward an environment, at its very basic point, I would agree with you. But after that, everything changes. So um, when, if, if you're in an urban situation and you can just walk into uh, any tavern armory, uh, blacksmith, whatever, the availability, easy availability of resources to me is a buzzkill. It's a big, big buzzkill. Um, I'd rather be exploring ancient civilizations or ruins or barrows or uh, crypts. That's the kind of thing that's really exciting. And again, we get back to our earlier discussion. Where's the darkness? Uh, Where is the scary, uh, you know, the, 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 the fear uh, of of dying when you're in an urban uh, situation? I I don't, I just don't feel the same way. It's not, uh, it's not a a game that would be um, like, I would do it as a one-off, but to do it regularly, it's probably not my, not my interest.
0: I gotcha. See, I I do see there being kind of a built-in element of danger. It's not the same. It's not things lurking in literal darkness, but it's this idea that in a densely populated city, your assailant could be literally any person uh, and could come from literally anywhere, and then they could fade into a crowd and completely disappear. But, you know, again... it, it it's different. It's a different feel. And so I understand why you would favor one over the other. Uh, I, I'm just looking to to see where that gap can be bridged so that there's not, you know, as so many people see it, this vast chasm between the two where people completely write off one for in favor of the other, where, you know, I feel like both can very easily be supported uh, within, you know, the world of tabletop role-playing.
1: Well, a great example that maybe speaks to your point would be Undermountain. So Undermountain has a great name. Uh, Undermountain has some great um, module-sized experiences. But as a a mega dungeon, it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because it wasn't fleshed out enough and because it's underwater deep. Um, Mm -hmm. The idea of popping up out of a sewer to walk 10 feet into a tavern holds no real interest for me at all fair enough. I mean, everyone, you know, like your thing, right? If that, if urban adventures are your jam, Hey, that's fun. Great. Um, but, but, uh, again, part of it's the historian and, uh, amateur archeologist in me that, that wants to be out in the wilderness, um, exploring ancient civilizations and tomb robbing and doing stuff like that. And mm-hmm. it's much, it's, you know, it's um that's that's the low fantasy part of it not to say that you can't have low fantasy in an urban situation you absolutely can um but they're just different for me
0: yeah fair enough now uh rex teal does make a a good point unfortunately we don't have anything to share here uh but he he wants to know about the random tables that you are planning for Dragon Slayer. i myself am a table enthusiast so uh, what has what that process been like for you in, in kind of generating these uh, random tables for this game?
1: Sure. Well, there are random tables for all kinds of different things. There are random tables. So if you're familiar with any of my Mega Dungeons, I'll have random tables for stuff in the monster sections, small ones, uh, and also in the spell sections. And then uh, I usually have a few random tables at the back. D100 kind of stuff so that if you're looking for a little bit of dressing or whatever to spice up your game that you've got those available to you. So I've got a, a right now I've got a three D100 tables at the back that are just like good fun stuff to put in if you want to spice up a room or an encounter and uh, I'm waiting to decide how many full page pieces of art I'm going to use before I I commit to any more tables because I'm right at the 290 page range and I want to tap out at 300. So um, I'm going to wait. I've got a few more pieces of art to come in here by the end of September. And then once I make a decision, because, you know, when you're thinking about a book that big, right, and you want uh, everything I map out for this rule book has a right and a left page. So when a section open, when a section begins, it's beginning on the left page, right? And then as I explained with the class sections, each page is a two page spread. So you have to have between those an even number of full page pieces of art to ensure that each section is starting on the left page and so on and so forth. So um, I need to... G- decide how many I want and where and then then I can make a final call on how many uh, d100 tables are at the back yeah absolutely it's just a little bit of a logistics publishing game so uh, but but I'll get there and and um, and I'll make sure that uh, there are definitely some random tables in there for sure hmm yeah
0: now one thing um, kind of a downer of a topic to discuss, but uh, this has been kind of a recent thing surrounding uh, Dragon Slayer role-playing game, and even, uh, you know, Lou asked about it here in chat. You mentioned Labyrinth Lord earlier. Uh, Not too long ago, you received a cease and desist from um, the creator of Labyrinth Lord, uh, Dan Proctor. Um, All kind of swirling around this vague announcement and, you know, these kind of scattered rumblings of Labyrinth Lord coming back in some form or fashion. Tell us a little bit about that. And, and I guess kind of, you know, clear this up for us. What What's going on here?
1: Well, so the first thing I want to say is uh, I'm as confused as, as everybody else is. So how you, like it's it's a little bit weird. Like the timing is interesting, right? Because um the Kickstarter launched, but a day or two later, Dan makes a proclamation that he's canning woke um labyrinth Lord to do to go back to plan A. And then a couple of days later he sends me that letter. Uh now there are two people that have full copies of this book, myself and the person I work with in Layout. And that's it nobody else has a copy so it's bizarre it's absurd and that's that's all i can really say about it um and whether i choose to publish under the ogl or i choose to publish under creative commons that's my choice and nobody's going to influence that decision other than me um the other part i'd like people to understand too is that uh you know dan and i were friends uh, acquaintances um, for a long time and he used. To, I live in Southern Ontario in Canada. He used to live in Western New York, and I'd send um, I'd send uh, Jordan Forge to his place and go and go pick it up. So it's all very weird to me. Um, and to see the progression of uh, or lack of progression with *Labyrinth Lord 2E has also been uh, puzzling. So you know, I'm not I'm not Dan's enemy. Um, certainly not. Uh, I think Dan is Dan's worst enemy. And honestly, uh, I each day I focus on the things that I can control, and that's making the best rule book I can with the coolest art that's going to be awesome for decades to come. And I'm not worried about anybody else. So I think one of the things that's really important, and if you're thinking about publishing anything, anybody that's listening out there, um, don't be dissuaded. You can't be um, cajoled or pressured into doing anything other than what you want to do and um have conviction for what you're doing and and stand by what you're doing and i'm humbled by the support that the osr continues to show me and and they show up they show up and they show out for my kickstarters and i do my my best to reward the and uh, reward the people that support me with the the best product i can uh, so um that's really all i can say i, I don't I don't bear uh, Dan any ill will. I was kind of surprised by the email myself. And uh, and I just hope that uh, he's okay and doing his thing. Because at the end of the day, we create these things, right? And then we let them go and they go into the marketplace of ideas. And, and the market decides whether something floats or something sinks. Yeah. And that's how exactly how it should be. The best ideas should rise. And the ones that aren't sync and so uh i'm not afraid of any kind of competition i'm more than happy i i know the time and the effort that i put into the things that i do um and i know they resonate with with people and as long as that happens i'll, I'll continue to make stuff so uh i think that's that's kind of the best um best way to go about it if you're thinking about publishing and just um be you and and do your thing and and everything else will will fall into place, and I, I think that would be the case here. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I, I think the aesthetic is one thing that that people will keep coming back to with Dragon Slayer. Uh, you know, Don here in chat um, mentions that you know the the art that was released uh, kind of in anticipation of a new edition of Labyrinth Lord was not the greatest. Some have even said that it looked like AI art, and What you're seeing with products that heavily utilize things like AI art or AI writing, or even just, you know, kind of a modern style of art is that they can't compete directly with things that lean on very, you know, aesthetically interesting works, especially ones like, uh, you know, the, the art pieces that I just showed on here that have a sense of emotion and, uh, you know, kineticism and, and charm. Like you said to them, a machine can't replicate that stuff, at least not yet. I don't think ever just based on my you know, metaphysical views on things. But if that's what you're bringing to the table, then yeah, people are going to turn up their noses at it because it looks bad.
1: Well, I gave a talk at uh, North Texas and I use this example and I think it speaks to what you're saying. So if, if we just kind of visually, you know, we're, you know, I'm a visual learner. So if you got this this area right in here that this represents art that's right in the wheelhouse, right? For your favorite edition whether it's BX or AD&D or second edition or third or fourth or whatever. That's there it is right there. But immediately on the other side of of that of that space are big huge uncanny valleys. And this the sweet spot to get it right is small. But the uncanny valleys on either side are quite large. Yeah. So we've all seen stuff, right, that it, it – well, it's kind of there, but no. Or it goes too far past that point, and it's – no. But then when it's right in the wheelhouse, we're like, ah, there it is. So that's – if you're – Trying to conceive it visually, think of it in those terms, and you have to know what you're doing. You have to know what you want, and then you need artists talented enough to um, render your vision. Yeah, and that's really what it's all about at the end of the day. And and so just speaking to the point of the um, of the of the um, in the chat, yeah, it's when you when you see it, you're like no. It just doesn't doesn't look right so and also to know your audience so if your audience is 5e write to that audience create art for that audience if your audience is BX or your audience is AD and D or whatever then write to that audience create art for that audience not all audiences are the same and I, I hear this nonsense about well you're not doing this in your books or you're not doing that in your books it's like, dude, you're not my audience, and I'm not. I'm not going to be moved off my spot by anything less than a convincing argument. And people don't want to put convincing arguments because they just want some people, not all. Some people on, you know, certain forums or websites or whatever, they just want to complain rather than being constructive and say, you know, this, that, or the other. And and so, don't worry about anything along that line. If you can see it in your mind and it interconnects with the text and it interconnects with other pieces of art in your, in your module or supplement or whatever, you're doing it the right way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That internal consistency is what it's all about, Mm -hmm. right? So if you, you can read books that are with no art at all that are not internally consistent. You can read research methods that are not used with internal consistency. You can see art that isn't internally consistent and you have to be. And, and that consistency speaks to the person who the author It speaks to their, their vision. And, um, and I, I just really want to emphasize those points that can't be emphasized enough. You have to know what you're doing.
0: Yep. Now uh, Lou makes another good point here and, and asks a good question in chat. Um, you've demonstrated that one, you have a lot of knowledge when it comes to art and also that you have a clear vision of what you want from your artist and and for your book. But do you ever get anything back from your artist that kind of blows you away or surprises you that, you know, you know, that they came up with, you know, taking this angle on, on this piece that you, you gave them to draw or, you know, they've. Exceeded your expectations in some way aesthetically, you know, has there been any, you know, big surprises from your art team in, in that regard?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, um, some, like some artists, um, their bag is, is dramatic, right? Mm-hmm. So Ken and James, for example, he's got a lot of really great dramatic stuff. Um, other people, their bag might be humor, Um, and, uh, and sometimes you can get a combination of those things. And I have literally received art and laughed out loud at the rendition that an artist came up with based on the brief. And it's because the artists play the games too, right? And they've been in those situations where you're down to one hit point and you you know, it's initiative time and you're either going to win this initiative and, and, and kill the goblin or the goblin's going to kill you because you've got one hit point. And, uh, and there's humor in that. Um, mm-hmm. There's humor in running away. Um, there, there's humor in getting your butt kicked. Yep. So some artists can convey that uh, better than others. And you know, another artist hint at it, right? So I do like a lot of Easter eggs. And if I have a particular vision for something I will suggest Easter eggs to an artist where it's appropriate. It's not always appropriate. And that's, you have to pick and choose, right? So if you flip through, say, the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide, you've got some uh, fantastical art from Darlene. You've got some uh, dark fantasy from, um, or a low fantasy from, uh, from uh, you, know, uh, you know, Trampier or Sutherland, or you've got some... Um, you know some other cartoonish kind of art from tom Wham. so you know there's a time and place for for everything now i don't usually go to the point of cartoony art um but having said that i do like humor and i like i think it's self um it's self-deferential it's self-reflexive so in the humor the the art is acknowledging itself as a game. And that's when we as gamers are poking fun at ourselves. Um, when, the, when the game is, a, the art of the game is acknowledging itself as a game. That's self-reflexive. And I think that's funny. Um, and, you know, I, we can't take the game. The game is supposed to be a serious game, but it's still a game. And that, that subtext of humor, I think, needs to be there. Not all the time, but every now and again.
0: Yeah, and, and there's a difference. Uh, Chuck Dixon actually kind of voiced this the, the best way that I've heard someone kind of, you know, bring, bring up that topic. There's a difference between comedy and humor. You need humor, but not everything needs comedy. You need those moments of levity, that mm-hmm. little release that, you know, kind of moment that lets you decompress from a tense situation or that lets you see the absurdity in a situation, but you don't need something to undercut the tension.
1: Mm -hmm. So one of the things I do in dragon slayer is, uh, you know, the text is written, um, to be clear and concise and to communicate what it needs to communicate so that you can play the game. And as you're playing the game, when you have to reference something, you can reference it quickly and you can move on. In the append, there there are multiple sections in the appendix at the end. And some of those are are written in a more casual tone. And there's a lot of, there's humor, uh, in, in the, in the appendices, um, that's more direct and clear. It's written in a more casual tone than the more formal tone in the, uh, you know the classes, um, equipment, spells, monsters, magic items. Um, I do have a few mo- a few uh, opportunities in there where I've got a, a couple moments of humor, and people will have to dig to find those, but they're there. But but the stuff in the appendix is more casual, and I'm doing that so that um, if you know a 12 year old or a 15 year old or whatever, some kid picks up the book. And they're like, well, I'm kind of reading this and I don't kind of understand it, kind of like we did when we were looking through like the Player's Handbook or the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide. And they do get to the appendix. It's written in a more casual tone and uh, that might resonate with them. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Now, this might be too big of a topic to, to swing back around to, um, you know, with, with 10 minutes left in the show. But, you know, there, there is something that I did want to kind of come back to and that's the 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 notion of uh dungeon crawling and and domain play and emphasis of of one over the other i know a lot of this will ultimately come down to dungeon crawling is the experience that you and the people who are your audience prefer they like the dungeon crawl that's what they come to the table for however I see dungeon crawl without progression to something beyond that to have a reason why you're stockpiling magic items, loot, weapons into domain play. You know, Mm -hmm. that's the reason why you amass all this wealth and and what you ultimately do with it. So without having that there or de-emphasizing that, it feels like, to me, it almost feels like half a game there.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, to me, the idea of... Um, adventuring so that you can create a stronghold and do nothing is kind of boring. Um, The last thing I want to do playing role-playing games is to get to the point where I create a stronghold and uh, that's just not exciting for me. Uh, So, and the other part too is, um, you know, this BX is the most, one could argue is the most lethal version of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, players just don't survive long. Um, and if you make it to like fourth or fifth level, you win, and your your wife should go treat you to uh, date night. So the way I see it, um, the wealth doesn't last very long, particularly when there are things to spend it on. And uh, at the end of the day, the the dungeon crawling should be commensurate with level. So, you know, p- players start off and, you know, they don't have too much to lose and they can be, act a little risky and they can die. But then you gain a couple levels and savvy veteran OSR players will actually become more conservative when they start hitting fourth, fifth level because they actually have something to lose. Then you push past that point, and then the stakes get higher. You start fighting bigger monsters. Uh, the stake, you know, and the stakes increase as you go, and it should be commensurate. So that's that would be my take on it. So I maybe have a little bit different take than than you do.
0: Yeah, and and I think what this comes down to uh, it, the differences in our opinion, at least, is I don't see entering into domain play as then you are kind of you know done with the game i we have examples of you know conan becomes a king and still then has to command his armies has to deal with uh you know the the threats that face a kingdom you you know you see aragorn become a leader of men you you see a lot of different fictional characters take on additional responsibilities beyond just exploration and adventuring and have you know a set of challenges to deal with so it the game changes fundamentally at that point it's not what it once was but to me that's all part of the progression and I, again if you don't like that side of things you don't like that side of things and that's yeah that's your taste that's fine but i don't see uh building a stronghold as a content dead end i guess
1: uh-huh. i kind of do um, so, you know, to me, if you get to the point where you have enough money to build a, a keep and and do your thing, um, you win. I mean, you win Dungeons and & Dragons, and it was advanced, to use the line from Community. So, um, yeah, I just, I've never had a character make it there.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Again, and, and not to keep going back to this. <clears throat> yes, you do win to a degree. You, you have achieved, you've raised your station, which for, you know, a medieval peasant is about the best you can hope for uh, this side of heaven. But then you get into, okay, you have all of this. Now keep it because now you're surrounded by people who have had this for a lot longer than you and nobody likes new money. So what do you do now? That's where I feel that the content comes in. And yeah, a a lot of people don't reach that level. I think a lot of people uh, don't try to reach that level or they don't think about the implications of reaching that level. And so don't strive for it. But I don't think that's anything to to stop people from trying it out.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean... To, uh, at the end of the day, don't get don't get me wrong. Um, if if you're playing in a group and everyone wants to like uh, build their strongholds and do their thing, and that's that's what impact you know creates a passion in the group, then absolutely do that and, and play that way. Like for me, um, by the time if I was DMing a group that was even getting close to something like that, I'd have a king from another kingdom or queen or whoever uh, beckon them to complete uh you know an adventure for them um you know pit them against uh the best uh monsters you possibly can and uh and then you you start talking about you know plane travel and things like that um strongholds can be a part of that experience at high levels um it's not the only one though yeah.
0: cool so as we're wrapping up here, I do want to remind everyone there are 23 days left in the Kickstarter campaign. The link, uh, once again, is right now in the live chat and will be pinned in the pen comment if you're watching this after the fact. Um what can people expect as kind of the, the campaign goes on? I, I don't know what your thoughts are on stretch goals or anything like that, but you know what what should people kind of you know stay tuned for as this campaign rolls out uh, once they back it.
1: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not too big on things like uh, stretch goals and that sort of thing. I think um, you know, stick to what the campaign is designed to do, and that's either going to float or it's not going to float. And so, uh, you know, I approach this the same way I did um, Duero Deep and uh, and and my other um, you know. Kickstarters the last maybe six years or so. So uh, honestly, I'm, I'm pouring myself into uh, the rule book to make it the best possible product I can. And, you know, I'm not doing this to put something out so that it has, it's dead in in two years. I'm doing it and I'm investing in the quality of it so that it has longevity. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to make something that, uh where the stuff is, looks kind of corny or or there are you know issues with layout it has to be functional it has to be useful it has to be concise and it has to look great and that's what will keep it at people's table and then the life will come from the compatibility uh, license that people can use to create stuff and then in about a year year and a half uh, i plan on doing i've got a full color uh, 34 inch by 34 inch hex map of my campaign world in which all the mega dungeons are set um dragon slayer will be the rule set for it so i'll do the map and i'll do a gazetteer probably in in a year or year and a half uh ish and uh so you know there are, there are things coming down the pipe and uh you know I've, I've got i've got the cover all ready for uh what will be the mega dungeon project number five of six so you know things are uh, i think in years i don't think in weeks i don't think in months i think in years and you have to have that kind of program and you, then you have to have the discipline and the consistency to stick it out yeah so th- that's that's kind of how i go about things so um there are some uh patches uh on the uh, on the kickstarter page uh i'll post a link for t-shirts shortly once i get them and uh, make sure that the, they're where I want them to be. And then once I've got all that sorted out, the Kickstarter will be will wrap up in about 23 days, I think you said. Yep.
0: Cool. And once again, uh, you can find that link here in the live chat or you can find it in the pinned comment for those of you who are watching this after the fact. Uh, well, guys, that's going to do it for and Bones today. Greg, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for uh, you know talking with us about this game. I'm interested to see... Uh, how this thing looks when it comes out and uh, you know i'm interested to see what kind of community forms around playing this game and creating content for it
1: yeah me too i'm very excited to see what people do with it and uh and that's how it'll grow that's how it'll get legs
0: yeah. all right guys well next week i will be joined by Uh, someone who very much enjoys uh, mass combat in uh, their role-playing games, uh, and that is Mr. Wargaming John Mullison. He will be on here uh, to talk all about uh, wargaming and its uh, ties to what is now the modern role-playing game, so I'm excited for that. I'm looking forward to it. I always like talking about Wargaming and its relation to what we now play as role-playing games. So I'm looking forward to it. Hope you guys are as well. And until next time, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I will see you guys next time.